2: History has a way of elevating just a handful of heroes. The many people who worked alongside them often disappear in the rear view. For example, if you grew up in California, you probably learned a little bit in school about the state's most famous Mexican-American son, Cesar Chavez. But what about the community he emerged from?
1: Chavez didn't come out of nowhere. (laughs) He came out of the shoulders of all these other people working for labor and community civil rights.
2: Latinos helped build San Jose and California, a history largely forgotten or ignored. This is The California Report magazine. I'm Aditi Bandlamudi, in for Sasha Coca. Today, we're highlighting the impact Mexican-Americans have had on San Jose through the lens of one Chicana trailblazer. KQED's Rachel Miro has the story.
0: The valley
3: was just replete with blossoms. All of the orchards were fruit orchards primarily. Blanca Alvarado and I sat down recently at her kitchen table in a sunlit corner of East San Jose. At 92, her body has slowed down and her hair has gone gray. But she remembers with absolute clarity the beauty of the Santa Clara Valley back when this region was agricultural.
0: The fragrance that wafted in the air to this day I will never, never forget
3: it. Before the age of the computer chip or the Internet, Mexican-Americans fought for and won political representation in this region we now call Silicon Valley. And Blanca Alvarado was at the center of that struggle. She was San Jose's first Latina city council member and the first Latina on the Santa Clara County Board of Supervisors. Today, she goes by many honorifics, but her favorite is La Madrina, the godmother when I came to California,
0: San Jose had a population of 70,000 people. So it was a small burg, you
3: know. This region was then called the Valley of Heart's Delight because it was famous across the country for its stone fruit and veggies. People from all over North America came here in successive waves to pick and process the crops. Born in Colorado, Blanca was 16 years old in 1948 when she came to San Jose with her family. My father always said that I was the best prune picker in the family, but
0: it was a horrifically difficult job. Being on your knees on clots of dirt
3: was very uncomfortable to say the least. Sunrise to sunset, apricots, plums, walnuts, tomatoes. Cesar Chavez also moved here with his family in 1948. At one point, as a young man, he would work in an apricot orchard like Blanca, making less than a dollar an hour.
0: But, you know, we earned a living. We had lived in tents for two years. We lived in shacks, tent shacks for two years, until finally we were able to rent a house up in the foothills of Evergreen.
3: You can literally hear the horn of the train at the top of this Mexican Revolution-era song, La Rialera, The Railway, in this version by the great Mexican singer Lola Beltrán. After the U.S. Civil War, railroads crisscrossed North America, linking farmers and ranchers to millions of hungry consumers. The Mexican-Americans who picked and processed those crops are the focus of an oral history project called Before Silicon Valley, a history of Mexican agricultural and cannery workers of Santa Clara County, 1920 to 1960. Dr. Margo McBain is co-director.
1: The railroads are definitely a sign of industrialization, and they're used not only to bring fruit out to markets, but bring labor in. Mexican workers were already you know, referred to as atraqueros. Historian
3: Suzanne Guerra is the other co-director. For Guerra, as with many on this team, this history is personal.
1: My grandfather was one of those who came in at 14 years old on a railroad car all the way up to Chicago to work from
3: the beginning, Gara says, the people who picked the crops were at the bottom of the economic
1: and social hierarchy. They were subject to the whims of the weather, just as the farmers were. So if the crop got wiped out, you didn't have a job. And also you were subject to the seasonality
3: of things. Many Mexican-Americans started moving into better-paying cannery jobs and the middle class. Economic stability meant more time to make their mark on the politics and culture of the city and Blanca, a young woman at the time, dove into that political energy. Her career tracks the history of Latino activism in San Jose. Blanca's first husband, Jose Alvarado, was a DJ at a San Jose radio station.
0: It had a very, very
3: strong uh, range, all the way to
0: Salinas, to Fresno, all the way north to Sacramento. He had a huge following on KLOK. He was the most prominent bilingual radio broadcaster in Northern California.
3: Blanca met him when she was just a senior at San Jose High.
0: He had a record shop and a broadcasting studio on Post Street, downtown San Jose. And so we would come in after school, play ping pong, listen to the jukebox, play Chinese checkers, and that's how I met him.
3: They married in 1953. Five children soon followed. The marriage provided Blanca with a golden ticket of sorts access to the backstages of San Jose's music
1: scene. Mi alma en yo te
3: Thanks to her husband, Blanca even got to host her own bilingual radio talk show at KLOK called Merienda Musical. big acts were homegrown. But a notable exception was Las Hermanas Montoya, who toured in the 1950s with a steady stream of hits, like the million-selling single, Mucho, Mucho, Mucho.
0: Montoya sisters, I remember them well. They needed a larger audience, and where could they get it, but in Mexico. Then they hit it big in Mexico
3: City, and so they never came back until years later. The singers were good friends with Blanca's husband, and as a promoter, he presented popular artists like the Montoya sisters in local venues. The tragedy of the time? There's little recorded evidence. I've searched high and low for any sort of Spanish-language
1: jingles, um, clips. There's nothing there.
3: Juan Antonio Cuellar is the curator of the Frontera Collection for the Arhuli Foundation, a nonprofit devoted to preserving American roots music.
0: It was such a huge community, such a huge pool of talent. You know, you're rubbing shoulders with people with the same experience, you're listening to the same music, you're going to work
1: in the canneries with the same people that you just spent the weekend dancing with.
3: It was, by all accounts, a golden age in both Mexican music and cinema. Fortunately for us, the really big acts, like the Montoya sisters, were recorded in Mexico City, as with this song, "Bonboncito." From these recordings, we can at least imagine how fun it was.
1: Now, when you went to the big city, you know, you didn't go to San Francisco, you went to San Jose.
3: Historian Suzanne Guerra says that in oral histories, she and her colleagues collected over more than 15 years. Local elders speak of a time when San Jose drew Mexican-Americans from farming regions far and
1: wide, looking for fun and community on the weekends. Because San Jose had everything. they had the shops, it had the movie theaters, it had the dances, the ballrooms, the clubs, the bookstores, it had all these Spanish speaking services. And if you couldn't find it in Gilroy or you couldn't find it in Elviso, then you would come to the city and the city was San Jose.
3: was also a time of political organizing. Guerra says many of Blanca's neighbors in East San Jose, including Cesar Chavez, were Mexican-American veterans of World War II, angry and frustrated by all sorts of systemic inequities in housing,
1: infrastructure, schools. They had sacrificed so much, and contributed to the American, the allied victory. And what did this country, what obligations were on the side of the country to its citizens, these were things that, by law, were entitled to.
3: Even as the rest of the region boomed with new suburban development in the 1950s and 60s, East San Jose struggled. There were no sidewalks. There were no uh, streetlights. Things were so bad back then. Locals nicknamed their neighborhood Sal Sipuete, or "Get out if you can." Blanca says the nickname stuck.
0: During the rainy season, the storms would be so bad and the mud would be so
3: thick that it was difficult to get out. So from Sal Si Puede, we went to Si Se Puede. Si Se Puede. Yes, we can. It's a slogan credited to Dolores Huerta, who co-founded the National Farm Workers Association with Cesar Chavez. Si Se Puede! The slogan's been adopted by activists all over the country in the decades since. Chavez didn't come out of nowhere.
1: Dr. Marco McBain. He came out of the shoulders of all these other people working for labor and community civil rights. Chavez learned to organize
3: from legendary local social justice activists. Blanca remembers meetings Chavez held in her garage. We were partners with Cesar Chavez when he began
0: with the community services organization. So almost from the very beginning of my adult life, Uh, I began to experience a political involvement that was the result of where I lived.
3: Similar to efforts in Black communities across the country, South Bay activists decided to tackle the institutional racism of the day by focusing on getting out the vote. But as historian Suzanne Guerra explains, Chicano activists came up against deeply rooted skepticism among Mexican nationals across the Western U.S.
1: My own grandfather came here at 14, but he never became a citizen. And the reason, he said, is that there was no advantage to being a citizen, that he would be treated exactly the same.
3: But young people like Blanca was at the time were hopeful about the possibilities for political change, especially with a charismatic leader like Cesar Chavez leading the charge.
4: In San Jose, in Los Angeles, and in other urban communities, we, the Mexican-American people, were dominated by a majority that was Anglo, I began to realize that the only answer, the only hope was in organizing. More of us had to become citizens, we had to register to vote, and people like me had to develop the skills it would take to organize, to educate, to help empower the Chicano people.
0: We saw our movement beginning to pick up steam and presence with Cesar Chavez, CSO, and the farm worker call for action as well. So today, when we talk about Cesar Chavez, I think we do it with nostalgia for the man, yes, but for the time that we experienced with him, there was so much excitement, there was so much energy, there was so much goodwill.
3: As the 1970s wore on, the Chicano movement made steady gains, improving conditions for migrant farm workers, establishing Chicano studies in California schools and universities, and getting Mexican Americans elected. It was slow going. Because we were not allowed
0: to be part of the establishment of the rulers of the time, we had to form our own institutions and we had to form our own protest organizations.
3: Blanca became the president of the Santa Clara County chapter of the Mexican American Political Association. She got into commission and committee work.
0: We learned the rules about how to confront government and how to petition government, how to be a voice in
3: government. Blanca helped push for San Jose to switch from at-large to district elections, which makes it much easier for political newcomers to win elections, especially from underrepresented areas. Then in 1980, she ran to represent her district and won. That's when she became the first Latina city council member in San Jose.
0: I have maintained throughout my political career that there is nothing that I can do by myself. We live in a tumultuous political time now, and one of the sad parts of our political institutions is the inability to collaborate and to work together for a joint common purpose.
3: Over her nearly 30 year political career, Blanca focused on health insurance and literacy programs for children, expanding access to public green space, and starting the fight to close down a small airport located. Where else in East San Jose? She played a key role in launching the Mexican Heritage Plaza and getting the park downtown where people protest and party in San Jose, renamed the Plaza de Cesar Chavez. But these are the kinds of battles against systemic racism that take years to wage. And the wins typically fade fast from public view. She's saying, my community deserves a seat at the table. I deserve a seat at the table. Santa Clara County Supervisor Cindy Chavez got involved with local politics in the late 1980s, in large part, she says, because of Blanca's example. What a profound, difficult thing at that time, right? I mean, wow. Generations of women and Latinos in the South Bay have sought public office in Blanca's wake, often seeking her endorsement. Chavez says she feels a sense of responsibility to finish what Blanca started on behalf of a community that has long felt unseen and unheard. I was serving with her on the board of the Valley Transportation Authority, and the VTA staff was presenting a plan to end light rail on the east side. And it was something that had been promised to the voters that we were going to build this out. And she leaned in. She was so fierce. You could see the tears in her eyes. She was angry. She was focused. She was not going to give an inch, like not one inch on that. Historian Suzanne Guerra says understanding the impact of Mexican-Americans on this region deepens our connection
1: to the history. You know, when I was a kid, I learned my American history, my California history, like everybody else. But folks like me and my family, we disappeared.
3: Google it. This history is hard to find unless you already know what you're looking for, and even then.
1: We're still considered other history, not American history, when the truth is American history is everyone's history.
3: A few years ago, Blanca got a special thrill when a local elementary school was named after her, the Alfa Blanca Alvarado School in East San Jose. She says she hopes younger generations of Latino activists take strength from her example. We are who we are because of who we came from.
0: In Santa Clara County and in East San Jose, we have a legacy of activism that goes way, way, way back.
3: Many of the issues Blanca fought for, healthcare, representation, housing, are still fights today in San Jose. She says it's time for the youngsters to start making their mark. For the California Report, I'm Rachel Myro in San Jose.
2: One place where that spirit of activism is alive and well is among the vendors at the Berriesa flea market, lovingly called La Pulga, or the flea, by
1: locals.
2: (laughs) The market has been here since 1960. But in the past two decades, its owners and the city have been working to transform this plot of land into a huge housing complex with offices, parks, and retail space. When that happens, there won't be room to keep the flea market as it is now. For years, vendors have watched as high-rise apartments go up around them, changing the neighborhood. But the vendors are fighting to keep the market alive. I visited one busy Saturday to learn how they're advocating for their place in the city's future. Thank you. The market is buzzing with shoppers and vendors vying for attention. The smell of barbecue wafts over from the food trucks. Mountains of produce, nuts, and toys are all around. I see a Vietnamese woman selling luggage, a Chinese family selling spatulas and strainers. But most of the vendors are from Latin America, and Spanish is the language of business here. I end up in front of a stall selling Mexican candy and piñatas with characters like Barbie and Bowser. This stall is owned by Maggie Castellon's family.
4: Each style of piñata you see is a different family that works on the styles.
2: Theirs is one of the oldest businesses in this market. Maggie's parents immigrated from Mexico and started this stall almost 50 years ago, before Maggie was born.
4: I learned how to actually walk. I learned how to speak. I learned how to add and multiply and by doing math and (laughs) selling stuff at the flea market.
2: Back at her home in East San Jose, Maggie says she can't imagine her life without La Pulga. It's where she first got to know people who spoke different languages, who came from different places and practiced different religions.
4: Our next door neighbor were from India and then we had some from Korea and I mean there's just like a beautiful melting pot.
2: Maggie says La Pulga represents the soul of San Jose.
4: All of the best pieces of all of these different cultures coming together and clashing together and coexisting together you know and it's beautiful. When I was little I didn't want to be there because I wanted to have a normal life like other kids, and you know, stay home on weekends and watch cartoons and do nothing. But now, as an adult, I'm like, no, this is the best. Like, I'm so happy that I had this upbringing.
2: The city understands how important La Pulga is to the community, but it's facing pressure from the state to build more housing and meet climate goals. The Barri Bard station recently opened right outside the flea market, making the plot of land where the market sits the perfect spot for transit-friendly development. Enter the Berryessa Bart Urban Village, which will have more than 4,000 new apartments and homes, acres of public parks, and it could be a model for other cities. Here's City Planner Charla Gomez.
4: It would be an amazing place to be there, just to bike around, really easy to get to the Bart station, uh, and it would provide a, a balance between housing and jobs.
2: Planners like Gomez imagine the new development will look something like Santana Row, an upscale shopping mall in the center of the city with luxury apartments on top. There's a Lululemon, a hot yoga studio, and a Tesla showroom. Maggie has complicated feelings about that mall.
4: It's a beautiful space, but it is very much non-inclusive in that certain you know, socioeconomic statuses are not able to attend that space.
2: She doesn't think Santana Row should be the only model for development.
4: Our culture in San Jose is changing, and it feels like a struggle to try to maintain what it once was. And I think there's people still here like us who are just like, oh, no, this is our city. Like, we're not leaving.
2: (laughs) Like many vendors, Maggie relies on the flea market stall to help pay the bills. During the week, she works as a courtroom clerk, but her paycheck only covers some of her expenses.
4: The funds that come from the flea market are able to supply, you know, food and additional payments.
2: The stall provides a flexible job for her brother, who's on dialysis and spends a lot of time at the clinic. Maggie wouldn't be able to make her mortgage without the supplemental income. And Silicon Valley just keeps getting more expensive. Families like hers are barely holding on.
4: Opening a business and having a second income seems to be the way that a lot of the residents in San Jose
2: are having to go. Maggie needs to keep this business alive to stay in the Bay Area, but it holds an emotional space for her too. Her family left everything in Mexico to come to the U.S. They built their lives here off of this business. She can't just let it go. There's just no way that we can ever quit. Vendors are taking matters into their own hands. Some have led hunger strikes and protests demanding the city's attention. It's working. This year, the city created an advisory council to craft a transition plan for the vendors as the flea market prepares to close. Maggie is one of the members.
4: So, if we want to be included, or if our culture wants to be included, then we needed to have a presence at the table where decisions are being made.
2: San Jose Council Member David Cohen represents the area.
4: Yeah, so you know, I I raised my family within walking distance of the within walking distance of the flea market. I used to go there on weekends.
2: The city council has designated five acres of the plan for an outdoor market. Cohen says he's committed to pushing whoever actually builds the project to continue the flea market there. But there's no guarantee the current vendors will get a spot.
4: It was between no flea market there anymore and a partial one. And from, from as a representative of my district, I wanted to keep something there.
2: Some vendors, including Maggie, don't want to wait around to find out who gets a spot and who doesn't. They'd rather pick up shop and start over somewhere else. That's why she and other advisory council members are hard at work trying to find a spot. They're considering the Santa Clara County Fairgrounds, an old airport, even an old garbage dump. The city says it's investigating each option, but hasn't committed to any of them yet. One small bit of hope for vendors? The city is having a really hard time finding someone to buy the property and start building. People are worried about a recession.
4: The environment isn't ideal right now, and so, Chances are the market's going to be open even longer than people thought.
2: It's not easy to operate a small business in this limbo. But Maggie has faith her family will find a way. After all, that's what generations of hardworking Latino immigrants have been doing in San Jose since the beginning. And that's it for The California Report magazine this week. Coming up next week on our show... Here we go. Woo. Finally
0: to the first branch, onward and upward.
2: We take a hike to meet some tree climbers in Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks, where unprecedented wildfires have destroyed some of the most majestic trees on earth, giant sequoias. These climbers are trying to salvage some of the cones that hold the seeds for new baby trees. There we go. Easy-picking right here. All right, I'm headed down. Stand clear. In some groves, there aren't even any cones with seeds left, because blazes like the 2020 Castle Fire have been so devastating.
1: It was terrible. It was really, it was like the surface of the moon. There was nothing alive.
2: Climbers are scouring for surviving seed cones so the park can replant trees. They want to ensure Sequoia National Park will actually have giant sequoias in the future and say we have to do something because humans are partly responsible for the destructive fires in the forest.
1: They're driven by 100 years of fire suppression, which were poor
2: decisions that we made as managers and made worse by climate change-driven hotter drought. But some critics say planting trees in a wild forest goes against the very definition of wilderness.
1: We don't need gardening in a wilderness. We need wilderness to be left alone for its own devices.
2: So that's the crux of the debate. Just how much should humans intervene?
1: Sequoia National Park may no longer have sequoias, and Joshua Tree National Park may no longer have Joshua trees, and that is- Glacier National Park is probably not gonna have glaciers. One of these days. For example, um, I mean we can't create, we can't intervene on that one right? <laughs> but you know it is, you know where do we draw the line? I mean uh, climate change is affecting every ecosystem. We can't go down the line and try to fix the ecosystems that are caused by climate change because climate is going to continue changing unless we solve the climate crisis
2: Join us to hear more about the debate over replanting giant sequoias next week on the California Report magazine. We're a production of KQED in San Francisco. Our interim senior editor is Katrina Schwartz. Susie Racho is our director producer. Our engineer is Brendan Willard with help this week from Christopher Beale. Olivia Zhao is our intern. I'm Aditi Bandlamudi filling in for Sasha Koka, who will be back next week.